Welcome to Theology on Tap. We're so glad that you're here. We're going to get started. Grab a drink, grab a seat, and um, we're thrilled that you're here. If this is your first time, welcome. What's that? Nothing. Okay. Uh, if this is your first time, we're so glad that you're here. The way the evening works is you'll see these little sheets of paper kind of spread around the room, and that's important because you can submit any question throughout the first portion. Uh, whether it relates to anything that we say or not, and we will have Colton, who's com compiling all those questions and moderating those, and then he'll pose them and we'll, we'll talk about those questions. But uh, the first part, we're doing something a little bit different, but we've talked about a, a number of different topics before. Excited to go into our topic tonight. But I wanted to draw your attention to something on here. Uh, we are meeting throughout the summer, which is exciting. This will mark like, we're pretty close to this. Is I think wraps up a whole year. Yep. Because we started in June of last year, so I think that's a year. But we've got the whole summer schedule on here, and something to draw your attention to in red. We we've been doing this every other week, but in the summer we got to mix it up a little bit. So there's like three weeks in there of a gap, and then we'll go back to back one time. So uh, if you want, if you like making schedules, just go ahead and follow that, and you can see when we'll meet. Um, also, if you have any particular preference for topics, go ahead, you can click that QR code on the bottom and fill out, send us some of your thoughts on what would be good topics to discuss for this summer. All right, Brian, you wanna share kind of what we're doing tonight? Yeah, so one of the things that we have been talking about and that uh, is really coming sort of from y'all is that a lot of times people will ask us uh, if there's a really good book about something that they could read, or uh, if there is a book that we were particularly shaped by or something like that. And so we decided, particularly since we're right on the beginning of summer, it would be a great time to talk about reading and talk about books that have really deeply influenced us. And uh, we are hoping that if y'all have even one-tenth as much fun listening to this <laughs> as we have had thinking about it and choosing books, you're gonna be like over the moon. Um, but I also just wanna put a caveat out there that this might end up having to be two parts because Maybe. I'm not sure we're gonna get through um, all that we would like to get through. So, uh, but books are important because books are things that make us slow down. They make us engage, they make us focus in, and we enter into the world that an author is creating. And very often when that happens, there can be a sort of a soul interaction with what the author has said and the way that God has wired us. And so books literally can change us and shape us. And we live in a world that is uh, much more oriented to technology than to books. And I think that that is really sad. Uh, so we are, we are making a, uh, a bold assertion uh, that we need to get back to more books. So. Amen. And we've got, there's no way that we're going to get through all of these. Um, so we'll leave them up. If you're interested, you can come check them out at the end. But we're going to go for like 20, 25 minutes and see what we get through. Yep. So you want to kick us off with a, a book that's impacted you? Yes. So Is it C.S. Lewis? How did you know? <laughs> um, so first book, Mere Christianity, and I'm sort of cheating because this is also a proxy for anything else that C.S. Lewis ever wrote. You should just read all of it um, because it's all amazing. Um, but Mere Christianity is particularly close to my heart 
Uh, many of you know Mere Christianity was done originally as broadcast talks in the midst of World War II during the Blitz in London, and C.S. Lewis would come in from Oxford on the train, literally as London was being bombed, and where the BBC headquarters was one of their main targets because the Germans wanted to take out the BBC, and he would go into the studio and broadcast live, and they recorded the talks, and then they were transcribed into a book. And this book has been influential in leading thousands and thousands of people to Christ. Um, when I was in college, I had just become a Christian right before I went to college. The end of my freshman year and pretty much all of my sophomore year was just a complete train wreck. And I almost lost my faith. And in the midst of all of that train wreck, one of my friends said, you really need to read Mere Christianity. And I did, and it totally changed my life. So I cannot recommend it highly enough. One thing I will say is if you start trying to read it and you have trouble, try reading it out loud, because since it was radio talks, it was meant to be spoken. Um, if you really have trouble, I'm at the risk of shameless self-promotion. Um, I have a podcast on Mere Christianity that is, I think now, the top hit on the internet for Mere Christianity podcast. So you can check that out, and it will help you get through it. So. That was, that was the mic drop right there. That's awesome. Uh, that's really cool. Yeah, so let the record show I brought more C.S. Lewis material than Brian did. So, But this incorporates everything else. Uh, <laughs> yes, I'm sure it does. But just notice he has the most beautiful book out of any book that we brought tonight. I'm trying not to covet this. So I got this at a Barnes & Noble. It's the Chronicles of Narnia. But I think it was probably a decade ago, maybe a little more. Um, that they had like the classics at Barnes and Noble that you could get, and so there's all sorts of classic books. And they had the Chronicles of Narnia, and I think we had just had children, maybe it was right before we had children. And I was like, all right, I gotta get this. Uh, but this is something, I think that, uh, you know, I read them, I maybe read like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as a kid, but I didn't know the rest of them. And it was actually my senior year at Duke, after really struggling in school for the first three years, and not finding a class that I really enjoyed. I took a C.S. Lewis class at Duke, and this was requir required reading that we had to do was the, the entire Chronicles of Narnia. And so that alone was such a nourishment for my soul and my faith. Um, so one of the things I think we're gonna try and do is just we've got some excerpts that we feel like- Oh, I forgot my you quote. For you forgot your quote. So I'll read right. mine. You can go back to yours yes, if you want right. to. Yeah. But yeah. one of the things I love about the, the Chronicles of Narnia is, I mean, all of fiction, all, Lewis's fiction in particular, he said good fairy tales are all about, uh, it shouldn't be something just for kids. In fact, like really good fairy tale literature is something that gets better as you get older. And that's certainly I've found to be true for the Chronicles of Narnia, and particularly how just the way he uses fiction to describe scenes, um, you know, the the Space Trilogy, which I'm not a huge Space Trilogy fan, but his is so good, uh, particularly in some of the uh, biblical themes that he captures there. But this is one where, like, Aslan, the, the, the god figure, creates the world, and so I'll say this is kind of how he's creating Narnia. And I made Justin read this because it makes me cry when I read it. You can cry still, it's okay. <laughs> in the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing. It was very far away, and Diggory found it hard to decide from what direction it was coming. Sometimes it seemed to come from all directions at once. 
something he almost thought, uh, sometimes he almost thought it was coming out of the earth beneath them. Its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of earth itself. There were no words. There was hardly even a tune, but it was, beyond comparison, the most beautiful noise he had ever heard. It was so beautiful he could hardly bear it. The horse seemed to like it too. He gave the sort of whinny a horse could give if, after years of being a cab horse, it found itself back in the old field where it had played as a foal and saw someone who remembered it and loved coming across the field to bring it a lump of sugar. God, said the cabbie, ain't it lovely? Then two wonders happened at the same moment. One was that the, su the voice was suddenly joined by other voices, more voices than you could possibly count. There were in, they were in harmony with it, but far higher up the scale. Cold, tingling, silvery voices. The second wonder was that the blackness overhead all at once was blazing with stars. They didn't come out gently one by one, as they do on a summer evening. One moment there had been nothing but darkness. The next moment a thousand, thousands points of light leapt out, single stars, constellations, and planets, brighter and bigger than any in our world. There were no clouds. The new stars and the new voices began at exactly the same time. If you had seen it and heard it, as Diggory did, you would have felt quite certain that it was the stars themselves which were singing. And that was the first voice, the deep one, which made them appear and made them sing. Glory be, said the cabbie. If I'd have, I'd have been a better man all my life had I known things were like this. I mean, just the idea of creation and God singing things into existence. Uh, but what that does to our level to hear the response of the cabbie who's like, man, if you really grasp it, we would want to live, I think, better lives yeah. seeing that. He, Lewis is so, such a master at those things. So good. All right, yeah. so I'm going to jump back to my quotation that some of y'all probably heard. This is a very popular sermon quotation from C.S. Lewis. So this is in Mere Christianity. Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I think that is just brilliant. It's classic Lewis. It's succinct, it's real, and it makes you think hard about who Jesus is. So he's so good, not just like with how he argues and the clarity of his thought, but to be able to write different genres the way he does yeah. is it's why we like him so much, yes, I guess. Exactly. But, uh, do you have a next book you want to look at? Oh, yes. <laughs> so many books, so little time. So, not surprisingly, the next book, and again, this is a representative for a lot of other books, The Return of the King, the culminating book of The Lord of the Rings, 
starting with The Hobbit, The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers. Um, how many of y'all have watched the movies of The Lord of the Rings? All right, the movies are awesome. How many of y'all have read the books? Okay, that's pretty good. If you have not read the books, but you've seen the movies, please read the books. The books are incredible. They're one of the great works of English literature, and they are imbued all through the book with this whole sense of the way that God has ordered the world, some of the most profound writing about friendship, about beauty, about self-sacrifice, about every virtue of the Christian faith is found in these books in a way that is absolutely astounding. Um, one of the things that I used to do that people thought I was so weird, um, so it's been this way for a long time, sorry, uh, but during law school exams every year, I would reread the whole trilogy because it was just the greatest way to escape out of all of the craziness of law school and the pressure and to dive into a world that was full of beauty and truth and goodness. And so there are, I could read <laughs> chapters out of these books, but um, two things. So first one, uh, this is a quotation from Gandalf. It is not our part to master all the tides of the world, but to do what is in us for the sucker of those years wherein we are set, uprooting the evil in the fields that we know, so that those who live after may have clean earth to till. What weather they shall have is not ours to rule. And again, that is just classic Tolkien. Um, you could expound on that for ages, but just the providence of God is just shining forth in that. And then this great line, from Thorin Oakenshield in The Hobbit um, that is the deep truth that our culture needs to hear and that we're living into a little bit in theology on tap. If more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. Oh, I love that. We, we read uh, The Hobbit to my children this past summer and they absolutely ate it up. They, that's why I started reading this again this last summer. Yeah reading the, the Narnian uh, Chronicles and then The Hobbit, so I can't wait to read the rest of The Lord of the Rings because I haven't. Just it's going to be good, though. <laughs> it's going to be good, I promise. I'm happy to lend you mine if that'll help. I have them. I bought them. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, another book that, getting off Lewis and Tolkien, as hard as it is, one person that has been, he's more modern, he's still alive today, is uh, Tim Keller. And I had a hard time, there were a number of books that Tim Keller wrote and sermons that he's done that have been a, an influence on my life, but the way he expounded the prodigal, uh, the parable of the prodigal son was something that really impacted me, because I grew up going to church, and I thought, why wouldn't God love me? I'm a pretty decent person. Uh, and so I'm going to read just a little bit of the way he talks about this parable one of the big uh, twists on it, which I had no idea. I knew about the, the younger brother who gets all the inheritance and runs off, right? Uh, that was an idea of sin that I could understand. But the older brother is really the punchline of the whole parable. So listen to what he says. He says, in the first act of the parable, uh, in the person of the younger brother, Jesus gives us a depiction of sin that anyone would recognize. The young man humiliates his family and lives a self-indulgent life. He is totally out of control. He's alienated from his father, who represents God in the story. 
In Act 2, however, the focus is on the older brother. He is fastidiously obedient to his father, and therefore, by analogy, to the commands of God. He is completely under control and quite self-disciplined. So, again, I I related a lot to that. Uh, So we have two sons, one bad by conventional standards and one good, yet both are alienated from the father in the parable. The father has to go out and invite each of them to come into the feast. So there is not one lost son in this parable, there's actually two. But the second act of the parable comes to an unthinkable conclusion. The storyteller deliberately leaves the older brother in his alienated state. The son, the bad son enters the father's feast, but the good son, the older brother, will not. The lover of prostitutes is saved, but the man of moral rectitude is lost. And Jesus doesn't simply leave it at that. He gets even more shocking. Uh, why does the older brother not go in? He gives the reason. He says, because I've, never, because I've never disobeyed you. The older brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of his goodness. It's not his sins that create the barrier between him and his father. It's the pride that he has in his own moral deeds. How could this be? The father, uh, the answer is that the brother's heart, both the two ways of life they represent, are much more alike than they first appear. The younger son, he uh, chafed after, or he chafed at having to be part, partake of his father's assets under the father's supervision. He wanted to make his own decisions and have unfettered control of his portion of the wealth. How did he get to that? He did it with a bold power play, a defiance of community standards. Standards. But the older son does it by being socially good, basically. Um, And the two sons, he says, were ultimately after the same thing. They were after controlling the father's assets. And I had never thought about the idea that, well, basically, sin is not just this outward thing that looks bad, but a position of the heart that just wants to manipulate God for our own ends. And I think he, I kind of botched the last uh, part of that quote there, but uh, that was a really, that whole book, I mean, this, uh, I'm sure it's a series of sermons, but the whole book about the parable in Luke 15 is so, so good. So good, yeah. Highly awesome. recommend, yeah. Alright, cool. So, to jump back lots of years, this is a little book that was written uh long ago uh, in the 4th century. Probably most of us are not reading a lot of things written in the 4th century, but you will notice one very important thing about this book. What is that? It's short. Summer reading. You know, everybody read the Red Badge of Courage because it was short. So this is probably the shortest book that will be on our list tonight. It is On the Incarnation by Athanasius. Uh, It is absolutely awesome. Uh, It is written in a very approachable way, and it is all about helping us re-embrace a sense of wonder at the great miracle that God became man and walked on this earth and allowed the crucifixion to happen and then was raised from the dead by God's power. It is incredible, and it has a, if you have really great vision, you'll see that there is an introduction by C.S. Lewis uh, to this. Uh, that's been published separately as an essay called On Reading Old Books. But this is an absolutely 
fabulous book, and I just wanted to share um, one quotation to give you an idea of it. So it says, our Lord did not come to make a display. He came to heal and to teach suffering men. For one who wanted to make a display, the thing would have been just to appear and dazzle the beholders. But for him who came to heal and to teach, the way was not merely to dwell here, but to put himself at the disposal of all those who needed him, and to be manifested according as they could bear it, not vitiating the value of the divine appearing by exceeding their capacity to receive it. It is just a brilliant book that uh, will get you fired up about the incarnation. It's a great book to read in Advent, which is our liturgical season that's the preparation for Christmas. I love the beginning of that that book too. The the, the is it introduction or forward? It's uh, whatever C.S. Lewis yeah, writes it's there. Introduction. Um, yeah. And that's one of the things you'll notice what we've brought is a mix of new books and old books. And so I brought St. Augustine's Confessions, which has got that famous line. It's, a, it's the first of its kind by like a thousand years, yes. where it's an autobiographical sustained prayer for the whole time. And it does get pretty complex towards the end, but the first half of it, I would say, is really, really good. So what's the famous line? The famous line. That, oh, God, may be chased, but not yet. I, I don't know if that's what it was that I'm thinking of, but no, it's you've made us for yourself, but and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And that's the way it, it opens. But I think for me, the, the part of this book that stands out is uh, he talks about going and picking pears from this, uh, basically they were stealing pears from a field nearby. And it's such a trivial thing but he goes into what was happening in his heart. And that was one of the things I read early on in my Christian journey that was like, wow, it really did expose a lot of just how, how heinous sin actually is. That he, he really kind of peels back the onion, so to speak, into what all is going on and, and just how wicked even something so trivial was uh, that it, man, if you did that about other activities that, that we do, you would see just how much of an affront against God it is. So this yeah. was this is a great book. I'd throw it along with uh, what you shared there as well. well a more up-to-date one that I wanted to, to share. I've mentioned this a couple times, and I don't get the wrong idea because it says the TechWise family. Um, so I wish it just said the TechWise home because a lot of you probably aren't married with kids, and I think that's kind of what he's talking about there. But uh, just insert whenever you see, hear family, home. And what he does is he talks about how technology has caused us now to have things so easily at our fingertips that it is made easy all of a sudden everywhere. And he's like, human beings aren't meant to flourish with that amount of easiness in our lives. And so he has 10 commitments that he puts forward that I just want to read, read a few of them um, about like what his family, and I think he's got two or three children, but what they kind of made like a, a little mission statement of a family, and this is what they said. Um, our family is committed to developing wisdom and courage together. Uh, we want to create more than we consume. So we fill the center of our home with things that reward skill and active engagement. Uh, they go on to talk about like the, play, the devices um, you know, they go to bed before we do, and they um, wake up later than, than the people in the home do. Uh, 
We use screens for a purpose and we never use them aimlessly or alone. Also, I love this. We learn to sing together rather than letting recorded and amplified music take our lives, uh, take over our lives and worship. And so this is one of those books I got probably, I don't know, it was six, seven, eight years ago. And I was reading it thinking like, okay, man, my kids must be like one or two at the time. And it, I just started weeping over the fact that like technology has such a hold on my own life. I think all of us probably can relate to it. I mean, one of these says in the very beginning um, of the introduction here is, uh, if there's one word that sums up how many of us feel about technology, it's help, right? And I think a lot of us experience, like we know that we shouldn't be our, on our phones as much, but we don't really have the power it feels like to do much yeah. with it. So this was one of those books that I, I read and I was thinking this would be really great for my kids and it just cut me to the core. And I highly, again, it's short, it's helpful. Yep. Uh, there were so many good things in here that I'm not gonna have time to share, but I would throw that out your way. All right, so back to Tolkien and Lewis since we've been away <laughs> for so long. Um, this is a really fabulous book. Um, it is called The Gift of Friendship. Uh, it's about Tolkien's friendship with Lewis. and even though it's about Tolkien and Lewis, it really is much more about Christian friendship and about the amazing way that Tolkien and Lewis called each other's gifts out and without one another and without the sharpening and the commitment and accountability that was in their relationship, they would never have written the things that they wrote that literally changed the world. And this book is um, written by a guy named Colin Durier, who's a good friend of mine who has forgotten more about the Inklings than most people have ever learned. Um, he's just a genius. And I wanted to just share um, a little quotation about this uh, from the book. Tolkien and Lewis rejected what they saw as the restless and continual quest for originality by modern writers. They believed that freshness in stories comes from reawakening what is already there in God's created world, not from creating something out of nothing. Meaning was to be discovered in God's created world, not to be created by mankind without it. G.K. Chesterton speaks of the way children are normally not tired of familiar experiences. and this, they share in God's energy and vitality. He never tires of telling the sun to rise each morning. The child's attitude is a truer view of things. And dipping into the world of story, adults can restore such a sense of freshness and wonder about the world. Lewis says, the child does not despise real woods because he's read of enchanted ones. The reading makes all real woods a little enchanted. And so it's just, it's a great book. Uh, if you want to figure out how to go deeper in friendships, it's a great book to read. Um, so I commend that to you. I also want to commend another author who, whoops, should have been an inkling but wasn't. A uh, woman named Elizabeth Googe, which probably nobody in here has ever heard of. Has anybody in here ever heard of or read anything by Elizabeth Googe? All right, well, do yourself a favor and uh, get acquainted with her. She was a brilliant woman. She was the daughter of the Regius Professor of Divinity at Oxford. Um, she never married, but she led a joyful and vibrantly Christian life. She wrote theology, she wrote poetry, um, she wrote fiction. And I want to just read a little thing um, from a uh, literary professor uh, about Elizabeth Googe. Why do I like Elizabeth Googe? Her books draw me into another world. 
They are imbued with the sense of God and the wonder of his creation, the wonder of his salvation and providence. They spur me on to self-denying love, courage and suffering, faithfulness in relationships, discipline and obedience, and joy in God's world. Her writing is lyrical and full of spiritual insight. I finish her novels with quotes and ideas I want to reflect on further and with a deep sigh of regret that comes at the end of a good book. And then a quote from Gooch herself. She says, I believe that as this world becomes increasingly ugly, callous, and materialistic, it needs to be reminded that old fairy stories are rooted in truth, that imagination is of value, that happy endings do in fact sometimes occur, and that the blue spring mist that makes an ugly street look beautiful is just as real a thing as the street itself. So the book I would commend to you is called The Dean's Watch. Uh, it was written back in the 1950s. It is a beautiful chronicle of a number of people in an English town trying to live out their faith in Christ. And the thing that I love about Elizabeth Gooch is she has that rare gift that Tolkien and Lewis both have about writing, writing about people who are good and writing about goodness in a way that's not trite and that's interesting, where you care about the characters. Writers will tell you it's much easier to make bad people interesting than it is to make good people interesting. But Elizabeth Gooch is really, really gifted with that. All right, so I think we probably need to wrap up. My last one, we've tried to cover a bunch of it. We've got um, theological works. We've got old works. We've got practical works. We've got autobiography, um, fiction stories. This is a biography of somebody when I read in college. He was a missionary who died early in life uh, named Jim Elliott. And many of you, have you heard of Elizabeth Elliott? Yeah, a lot of folks. Yeah. Uh, so this is a biography of Jim Elliot. A lot of it is his journal entries. It's called The Shadow of the Almighty. And it is one of those, I think, reading Christians who've gone before us and who really have a, a vibrant uh, sort of faith, I was really encouraged reading and, and really wanting to, to live like these people did. And so uh, just a couple quick ones that were in this. She says of him that he sought the help of older Christians in learning to live for God. And there were occasions where, uh, when he asked them to pray with him. Of one of these, he wrote, I had fellowship in prayer with Brother Harper and discussed the things of God. A happy experience it was. God, I pray that, that you would light these idle sticks of my life, that I may burn up for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. He's also one of the, the famous quotes that says uh, here on the front, he is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. And it was so true because he gave his life as a missionary uh, in South America in trying to share the gospel with unreached people. Uh, so that was just something that captured my imagination and wanted me to spur me on. So shadow of the almighty, life of so good. good stuff. So good. Do you have one more? Um, I'll do one more. This okay. is a little out of the box. Uh, this is a big, heavy book, but it is fantastic. Brothers Karamazov, Fyodor Dostoevsky. Um, 
a lot of people are intimidated by Russian writers, but when you read this, you will think, how did this guy get inside my head? I mean, it is absolutely amazing the degree of spiritual and psychological perception. It is a profoundly Christian novel, and I'll just read you one little quotation since we're running out of time. The man who lies to himself and listens to his own lie comes to such a pass that he cannot distinguish the truth within him or around him, and so loses all respect for himself and for others. And having no respect, he ceases to love. And in order to occupy and then distract himself without love, he gives way to passions and coarse pleasures and sinks to bestiality in his vices, all from continual lying to other men and to himself. And then this. The world says, you have needs, satisfy them. You have as much right as the rich and the mighty. Don't hesitate to satisfy your needs. Indeed, expand your needs and demand more. This is the worldly doctrine of today, and they believe that this is freedom. The result for the rich is isolation and suicide. For the poor, envy and murder. And since it's kind of dark, here's a hopeful one. Be not forgetful of prayer. Every time you pray, if your prayer is sincere, there will be new feeling and new meaning in it, which will give you fresh courage, and you will understand that prayer itself can be an education. I love, yeah, Dostoevsky is great. So good. Well, that was so much fun for us, and you have no if, idea if that how was really boring. Sorry about that, but we enjoyed <laughs> it. Uh, how are we doing on questions? We've got quite a few questions. If everyone could take a minute to uh, submit any last-minute questions or like those that you would like to hear answered, uh, that would be much appreciated. So we should, we have a podcast that people don't know about. It's on Apple and it's on Google Podcasts. Uh, we could put it in the show notes for that, I guess. We also, I'll send an email out with even the ones that we didn't get to probably, um, or at least the ones we did cover and then a few more. Okay, first question. There must be some funny questions. Any examples of books not written by authors with a Christian worldview that have impacted you significantly and you would recommend? Yes. So um, there are a lot, actually. I think there are a lot of authors that write um, who are not Christians and who are not writing from a Christian worldview, but because natural revelation is part of what Scripture teaches, people who are not Christians can still see truth or sometimes their error can be so bold 
um, that it's actually encouraging to read because your response to it is that's crazy. So in that category, um, I would highly recommend Bertrand Russell's Why I Am Not a Christian. Um, it is the most terrible book um, about why you shouldn't be a Christian, um, essentially because he sort of creates a straw man. His idea of what Christians believe is not actually very correct. Uh, so I would say that is um, not, uh, it, it's a great book to read because it will encourage you about the fact that Christianity is really defensible. On a completely different note, um, one of my favorite books that really did influence me deeply by an author who, so far as I know, is not a Christian, it's not writing from a Christian worldview, is a book called A Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Tolles, T-O-W-L-E-S. Um, it's a book about a guy who, um, in the Russian Revolution, fled because he was an aristocrat, he was in college, he was kind of a poet, and uh, he came back after the revolution and because he was an aristocrat, he was arrested and sentenced to death. Then they found out that he had written a poem that might have maybe been construed to be pro-revolution. So instead of killing him, they sentenced him to spend the rest of his life in this hotel. And he cannot ever leave the hotel. If he does, he will be shot. But he, the novel, he creates this incredibly rich and textured white within the confines of this hotel. And there's a lot of just beautiful wisdom in that book that's not specifically Christian, but is in accord with Christianity about the way, even in circumstances that we would never have chosen, it is possible to live a life of beauty and truth and goodness. Yeah. Um, pretty much, I don't, and I don't know, like the, all the classics, you know, I think have been books that just really good literature is a good thing to read. So, um, yeah, I would recommend, uh, I don't, you know, I don't even know if they were Christians or not, to be honest with you, but like Great Gatsby was a, a book that I really enjoyed. Any kind of good uh, literature out there is, is something worth it. Is Charles Dickens of Christians? Dickens is Christian. Okay, well, see. Oh, well. Uh, <laughs> David, David so Foster Wallace is somebody who didn't write classics, right. but that was something that uh, he, uh, This is Water, that essay is yeah, really good. Fabulous. That's a great one. But any kind of good literature. Great question. Yeah. Do you set aside time to read each night? And what's your reading routine? Uh, I do. I read every night for at least 30 minutes before I go to bed. Um, I also usually read on Sunday afternoons. Uh, I like to, anything that is longer, uh, I usually try to read on Sunday afternoons. I'm fortunate in that I read fairly quickly. So um, Sunday afternoons, or a time if I need to get through a number of chapters of something, I can do that. But I find that reading daily is just a great habit to be in. And I'm not usually reading just the same book. I usually have about eight different books going at a time. And I just kind of alternate depending on what mood I'm in, which is probably sort of weird. Yeah, I can't do any of that. Read fast, <laughs> read multiple things. Um, so my, my life's just crazy compared to that. Like I... Probably the most scheduled reading I do is to my kids at night, you know, which has been great because I've gone through Tolkien and Lewis mm -hmm. and um, some really good stories, I guess. But no, it's it's seasonal. So summer, I'll really go through a lot of good stuff. I'm excited for some things uh, this summer that I'll read. And 
yeah, it just kind of comes. I, I don't really have my schedule. I would love. I there in college, it definitely was more regular like that. I yeah. think. We well, are in a season where it's yeah, hard to do it's a lot just, of reading. It's kind of crazy, but I'm not a fast reader at all, and I've found that I like. I can try to skim read, but I much rather prefer reading for quality over quantity. Yeah, definitely. But that's me. Can we broadcast this on Zoom? Gas prices are making it hard to attend in person. <laughs> wow. If, if it's that far to drive to get here, we're glad that you're here, I guess. You can bike. Um, yeah. yeah, you don't need to see us. You can listen to us on the podcast. It's probably better to listen instead of looking at us. <laughs> Besides the Bible, what is the single most important book slash text in the Christian canon. Besides the Bible. That's an impossible question. That is an impossible question. It's kind of fun to think about. We didn't mention any of the books of the Bible that this I just realized that. That's kind of <laughs> I kind of took it for granted that we yeah, wouldn't actually that, talk yeah. about yeah. that. that there's some, there's some good ones. Say. That could be a whole one in itself. What would you say? Well, yeah, the Anglican answer would be the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, but I think, you know, in the sort of history of Christianity, there are a lot of different books that at different times and places have been thought of as the most important books. So like in colonial America, if you ask that question, without a doubt, it would have been Pilgrim's Progress right after the Bible. Um, if you'd asked that question in the era of chained libraries, uh, in the uh, 12th and 13th century, people would have said the consolation of philosophy by Boethius. Uh, but those are things that change with different seasons. Yeah, what he said. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> are there benefits of reading actual text versus only listening to audio books? I think so. It slows you down, right? Because I'm not a fast reader, but I think that's something... Uh, there was a, did you see the study that was done about, there was some study I think that was done about that benefits of reading as yeah. opposed to just listening. Yeah. Do you know what that was? Well, one of the benefits is retention. You don't retain yeah. things that you just listen to very well. Um, but I think one of the benefits of actually having a book in front of you rather than just something stuck in your ear uh, is that you can slow down you can go back and reread. Uh, one of my favorite books that is, again, I don't think this guy's a Christian, but it's called Soldier of the Great War by Mark Helprin, who is an absolutely brilliant writer. Uh, and his writing is just luminous. And so when I would read that book, sometimes you would just want to stop and just appreciate the use of language that was in there. If you're listening to Audible, you just can't do that. So I would say also that it does slow you down it enables you to be more present with the thoughts of the author. Um, all of that being said, listening to a book online is much better than not, <laughs> not doing it at not all. Doing it at all. Um, the other thing that's helpful is like if you're in a book club or something and you're really behind, Audible can be a really great lifesaver in that so that you do actually hear, you've at least been exposed to all of the text. Yeah. I. I had a long commute a lot in um, 
grad school, and so I listened to so many things on tape, and I'm grateful for that because I could have been doing other things, and uh, I found that I actually could really listen well and re retain a lot of it. But without a doubt, if you're looking for like retention, and especially if you're some of the stuff I read like makes arguments, right? And so like following the train of thought, yeah. which is I think something that we by and large lost today across a generation because of technology. Like to be able to know where you are by holding a physical tactile thing, right? Like really helps not just knowing kind of where you are, but also following the train of thought yeah. too Absolutely. in that. Yeah. Great question. Can you provide blankets or sweatshirts next time? <laughs> Could be really hot outside, I know that. It does get cold in here. Bringing a light jacket's a good idea. First world problems. Yeah. What book would you recommend for dating relationships? That's a really good question. Um, this is going to sound really weird, uh, but I think one of the best books you can read that will give you a framework for dating is Tim Keller's The Meaning of Marriage, uh, because it takes our whole cultural understanding of male-female relationships and puts it, uh, takes it out of the messed up framework that it's in and puts it back into a biblical framework. So if you understand what marriage is about, that can help inform your understanding of dating. Yeah, that's a good, I mean, that's kind of the dating, I think, from a Christian perspective is you're looking to, to be married eventually. It's not a permanent status that you find yourself entering into, basically. is not the design of dating. Okay. So finding out, okay, marriage, reading about that is good. I'd also say read things on friendship. Yeah. Uh, what was, I mean, you had a book here on friendship, uh, but there's other books that are really good on friendship. And learning how to just be a, a fellow human being in a friend relationship it's probably more important than any book on like how to be a good boyfriend or girlfriend. Yeah, the five love languages is another book that's really good, um, not just for dating or for marriage, but also for friendship or just within your family. Uh, understanding the different ways that people are wired and how we express and receive love that would be really helpful. Also, do you recommend the Bible? If so, why? <laughs> Yes, we recommend the Bible wholeheartedly and without reservation. And I would say, why? Uh, because we believe that it is God-breathed and that it contains all things necessary for life and salvation. Um, but besides that, the Bible is the most remarkable book in the history of humankind, written over a period of thousands of years, by different authors and yet all pointing to the same plan of salvation that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It is absolutely the most astounding book that there is in the world. And we, uh, many of us, just ignore it uh, and don't realize what a gift it is. So yeah, absolutely, we highly recommend the Bible. And a lot of the books that we've shared are trying to understand what the Bible teaches and have, they have thoughts, you know, extrapolating on what the Bible is actually saying. And so that you can pick up any one of these books and you're not going to necessarily hear God speak. You can pick up the Bible and you're guaranteed from the Christian perspective to hear God speak to you. That's the only book that you know that God is actually speaking. So I think, yeah, highly recommend. Yeah. And it's also the best antidote to everything that... Uh, 
is going on in our culture that seems to be heading in the wrong direction. Uh, some of y'all may be familiar with Jacques Derrida and deconstruction and all of that sort of stuff that's all over the academic world. And he talks about how what he wants to do is destroy the logos that's the organizing principle of the world. And of course, the logos is what John talks about in his gospel in the first chapter that is Jesus himself and the word of God. And so the best way to fight against that deconstructionism is to be deeply invested in the word of God. Top five novels of all time, you have 30 seconds to answer. Gosh. <laughs> All right, I'll go. Um, Les Miserables, uh, Great Gatsby, Kill a Mockingbird, Tale of Two Cities. There's so many. Cry, um, the, Cry the Bullet in the Country, and uh, I'll just add really it. Good. I'll yep. add it. Um, Crime and Punishment. Yes, Crime and Punishment is awesome. Yes. Dickens. City of God. <laughs> That's it. What about the hungry, hungry caterpillar? <laughs> uh, I knew that was one. Yeah. <laughs> Good visuals. If I were to binge read a particular author this summer, who should I read, and why is it C.S. Lewis? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. <laughs> Because you already got the answer right. Um, one of the reasons to read Lewis is that he was one of the most remarkable Christians who ever lived. And part of the reason for that is he was somebody who was a deeply committed atheist before he was a Christian. And so he understands all of the arguments and all of the different things that people who are atheists, the direction that they're coming from, the other thing with Lewis that is so remarkable is he wrote across all of these different genres in a way that was absolutely brilliant. But perhaps the most important one is that his secretary, who was one of the people who knew him best, said that Lewis was the most thoroughly converted man that he had ever met. And the way Lewis viewed the world is summed up in that quotation from one of his essays where he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not just because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And I think that perspective that Lewis has is something that is absolutely life-giving if you're a Christian. Yeah. Sorry, that was a little preachy. C.S. Lewis is it. <laughs> uh, I, one of the things we haven't said is if you're going to bend, there is value in reading folks from a totally different time period, right? And so I would encourage you, it's actually not that hard to pick up like Martin Luther, read some of him. I brought, just because last week somebody asked about free will and predestination, I brought John Calvin's Institutes up here. Um, you'll find these things that are hundreds and hundreds of years old far easier than you expect. Uh, reading Augustine would be a great person to pick up. Um, yeah, especially Confessions. Confessions yeah. is a great place to start, but there's so many things. Um, but I would recommend, and Lewis is within 100 years, but go outside of that and then see just how uh, you'll be blessed by somebody with a different uh, perspective, I think, than we are in right now. One more? 
Thoughts on banning books, particularly in the current context of school curriculums and access through academic and public libraries? That is a minefield of a question, uh, but it's a good one. So I think that there are, it depends on where you're talking about the banning. Um, I do think that one of the things that is a big issue uh, with banning books is in schools. And there, there are two very different uh, and completely opposite points of view about this. Some people think that children should be able to read absolutely anything that has ever been written. And I know people like this um, who hold to that point of view. Um, I am absolutely at the other end of the spectrum. I believe that the innocence of children is something that as adults we are called to protect and we are called to guard. So I think reading things that are um, dark and perverse and evil um, should not happen uh, in terms of things that are being endorsed or required by schools or included in school libraries for people that are under the age of 18. I think when you get to college, it's a different deal um, that you have the opportunity to be able to judge um, for yourself about some of these kinds of works. But I think it is profoundly unhelpful. Um, you know, I remember when my daughter was in ninth grade, she was uh, required to read, uh, and I forget the name of this book, but it's essentially a book that is about 10 people that meet on a rooftop who are all up there because they're planning to commit suicide. And that's not helpful uh, when you are a ninth or 10th grader struggling with all sorts of emotional things and you don't have any kind of framework or guidance. Um, you know, it used to be that when you were in school, things that you read were things that encouraged you um, in virtue, encouraged you in um, developing your gifts, um, things that highlighted people who had overcome the odds and lived lives that changed the world. That kind of reading, I think, is much more appropriate than things that are dark and perverse um, at school age. Are there any other places that you would be, so it sounds like under 18 in schools, that's probably not wise to just have anything go. Are there other places that you would envision the banning of books being okay? Not as much. Um, I'm a big believer in free speech. I think free speech is really critically important. Um, I think any time that something is required of people, that becomes a little more problematic. Uh, but I think free speech um, and having literature that is available for people who are adults, um, that that is uh, reasonable. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think I agree with everything you said. I think because I deal with college students a lot, I think it's really important. I think one of the books that I didn't bring, The Coddling of the American Mind, talks about it, particularly the last six years, um, the uh, basically restriction of speakers coming to college campuses and the idea that colleges are a place, a marketplace of ideas, mm -hmm. and we are at that point like expected to be able to engage in free thought and speech. And the idea, the best ideas should bubble up to the top. Yes, that's it. absolutely. Uh, but when it comes to children, I agree wholeheartedly with you. I think that's uh, spot on. Good question. Yes, yeah, this is fun.
Do you, do you have, oh no, I thought you were going to say something. Uh, thanks so much for coming. We'll we'll be back in two weeks. We're and if you need book recommendations, we are always happy to oblige. Feel free to come and check them out. We'll be around uh, and stick around, hang out. All right, thanks for coming. Thanks. Perfect.